Joel Schumacher is one of the worst filmmakers to ever roam Hell's Half Acre. And I know what you're thinking, and you're correct. He has nothing to do with this episode, but bear with my rambling mind for a brief moment and I will explain why I mention him. For any listeners who weren't conscious in the late 80s and early 90s, you might not realize or remember how balls-out awesome Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera was back in the day. Prior to the advent of the internet and cable TV, if not in its infancy, definitely still in its adolescence, it was everywhere. It was inescapable. I took a school field trip to Toronto just to see it on stage. It was huge. It was like if Rent and Hamilton had a baby. I loved it as a kid and rocked out in my basement belting my 70-year-old lungs out along with the soundtrack of the original Toronto cast, which is vastly superior to the London cast because Colm Wilkinson is a heavyweight god among men and Michael Crawford is a flyweight minor celestial at best. That's right, I said it. Come at me. So you can imagine how excited I was to learn that they were making it into a movie, and then how disappointed I was when I actually saw it. If you haven't seen it, don't. It's borderline unwatchable, with the possible exception of the excellent Emmy Rossum. I was baffled. How could this be? How could you take something so good and turn it into something so unrecognizably bad? And then I discovered a crucial piece of information that I had somehow missed before. It was directed by Joel Schumacher the same cinematic mad scientist who had not so long prior broke new ground of bad filmmaking with his revolutionary experiments on how to make Batman suck, and would not so long afterwards cement his legacy with that mummified dog turd of a movie, The Number 23. If I had known that going in, I probably wouldn't have even gone in. That's my long-winded and fairly on-brand way of saying, most of the time, a director doesn't surprise you. If you hate one of their movies, you'll probably hate all of them. And if you didn't like 2017's The Darkest Hour besides Gary Oldman in a fat suit, you're not going to like this one either. It has 100% fewer fat suits. This is the last installment in our experimental miniseries World War II Through a Child's Eyes. And while this one may seem a thematic stretch since the child in question doesn't have much to do with the war, I'm glad we're wrapping it up with this one. Thus far, we have seen tragic kids, plucky kids, and shitty kids. Nowhere along the way have we seen a plucky kid who is so tragically shitty. But her experiences were the same as a lot of the kids in her generation. They were confused and removed from the politics of the world until the politics of the world in some cases literally blew their lives apart. There is loss, pain, and regret as the world is shifting in ways nobody could understand, let alone an overly privileged 12-year-old. And even if the wounds were lucky enough to heal, the scars that they left behind were set too deeply to fade with time. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So come along for the ride as a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director discuss the Oscar-winning melodrama from 2007 that was not directed by Joel Schumacher, but almost might as well have been, Atonement. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here today with my partners... Katie. 
and Liam. And today we're going to talk about a 2007 film called Atonement, which, yes, set in World War II. We're back again, folks. Don't be salty about it. Don't be, don't be mad. <laughs> Just let it happen. And Katie's here to give us our mission briefing. So Joe Wright directed Atonement, and he is known for his vast historical epics, and this one is absolutely no exception. It's based on the acclaimed novel by Ian McEwan. It's a story of betrayal, mistrust, guilt, and love, and it was ripe for adaptation very quickly after it came out. This and the adaptation is actually pretty good. It hews close to the original story. During the brief peaceful period between the world wars, on a hot summer day in pastoral upper-crust England, Robbie and Cecilia, who are on opposite sides of the upstairs-downstairs divide, start a passionate romance. Bryony, Cecilia's younger sister, is jealous of their relationship, and after a series of misunderstandings that would be comical, if not for the dire consequences, proceeds to accuse him of a terrible crime. The story picks up for Bryony, Cecilia, and Robbie four years later, in the midst of World War II. Robbie's in France, while Bryony and Cecilia are nurses in London, and we see that the trauma and lies of their past are still weighing heavily on all of them. Now, I hate to use this term, but this definitely falls into the category of Oscar bait. While it played at festivals around the world in 2007, it wasn't released in the U.S. until early December, a classic move when a studio is angling for that shiny gold. Their efforts kind of paid off. They received seven nominations, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. But only Dario Marianelli won with his original score. Unsurprisingly, it was much more successful at the British Academy Film Awards, also known as BAFTA, for those in the know, with 14 nominations and a win for Best Film. Beyond that, the film was a financial success, with a budget of $30 million and a box office total of $131 million. Critically, it was generally well-liked. It's gorgeously shot with great performances and epic production design, but it faced its fair share of judgment for the extreme melodrama in a sense that the story lost something in translation from book to movie. For me, the melodrama totally works. Those kinds of British period pieces are my bread and butter growing up, and this ticks all the boxes for what makes those enjoyable, but I can definitely see the flaws in this one. So, where do you guys stand on melodrama? Is this too much for you, or were you just all about it like me? Oh, man. Well, first, I, I, I think I have to reflect a question back to you guys, certainly to Katie, but Liam as well. This whole, what I see a lot is like 1800, like 19th century British aristocracy melodramas. So this is later, but still in general, it kind of is in that vein of... Um, Pride and Prejudice, Downton Abbey, you know, mm -hmm. there's a whole list of super famous ones. And so far, I don't think I've, and I, I'm not trying to make this about gender, but I have not run into any woman of any walk of life, queer, straight, like old, young, doesn't matter. I feel like all women love all romance period pieces for, or like this style of story about what rich people get into their shenanigans between love and between classes in England and everyone has an accent. Like, holy shit, is that genre successful? That's fucked up, man. Why would you say that? That's real <laughs> sexist. Jane Austen is rolling in her grave. 
It's probably my least favorite uh, genre, and not because I don't see like I think it's well done. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not crapping on how they're made. I just think that for me, the plight of rich British aristocrats is like the very last thing I give two flying fucks about. I would much rather see a story about poor people trying to survive and adversity in like lower classes. Like that's more interesting to me and I can empathize with those people more. Oftentimes there's just a barrier for me and it's not, it's not like I hate rich people or anything, but I'm like, Oh, boo hoo. You're having like (laughs) romance problems. You live in a 67 room mansion. So I don't know. Is there something I'm missing? I have an answer for you. Or It's the same reason everyone loves like uh, British uh, crown stuff. And I've seen some episodes of the crown. It's a really incredibly well-made show, but I'm always like, who gives a shit? (laughs) Okay. So as, as the resident, uh, woman on the podcast I'll, I'll give my two cents about it at least which of course I, I don't speak for all women in any way shape or form that's what so... i'm here for <laughs> i speak i'm like the lorax but i speak for all women oh liam <laughs> you're so funny <laughs> <laughs> that um, was the nicest way you could have told me to go fuck myself <laughs> anyway so Here's here's the thing is there's a I get what you're saying about it being like with Downton Abbey and that's the big one and I think Bridgerton is on Netflix which I haven't watched yet but is on my to do list. Um, it does generally focus on the upper class, but the, like that upstairs downstairs divide is generally what makes those things watchable. Like if you go back to the 70s with um, oh god upstairs got- downstairs. Uh, like literally one, upstairs, downstairs. That one, which is where the trope comes from. Um, but uh, no, there was there is this nineteen seventies, eighteenth century period piece that uh, Poldark. That's mm, what it is. That's Poldark, the other one. and they recently remade it. Um, but there's always this aspect of uncertainty with your place in cl- in the class and all of that. Um, and when we're talking about you know the literature. In that so many of these shows are aping, like Jane Austen and such, very rarely in those books are the heroines actually rich. They just have enough money so that they're not, quote unquote, peasants. So it's like a they're very the lowest class. of that of that class. Right. And so they're marrying up as women of the genteel class. They couldn't get jobs. So the only option was like who you were going to marry. And that's why that's how that genre kind of started and it appealed obviously to the women who lived that life and now we have it today and i think the biggest appeal for it is is just watching this outsized romance it's so over the top and they're just so in love with each other and it's just kind of it's almost like a satirical thing that i take for me anyway where i take pleasure out of seeing like Oh man, how are you going to maintain that? Like the like in this movie with the two of them, where they're just like the most passionate lovers who ever passionated. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I remember that time in my relationship. I wonder what you're going to be like in five years when you're all like, mm, I'm tired, get out of my way. <laughs> so I, I like how at one point the uh, 
the author character in it. I mean, Bryony, I think she says this as an older woman. She describes the clarity of passion. And I just like laughed out loud at that. I'm like, what the fuck is that clarity of passion? Right. If you are feeling passionate, there is no goddamn clarity. Let me exactly. tell you. <laughs> I mean, you're clear in what you're into and what you want to do. And, you know, right. I, 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 <laughs> but everything else is a fog. DTF. So, yeah. Exactly. So, uh, Liam, do you want to speak for the rest of the women? Yeah, that came for the rest of the women? Sure, for absolutely. For the rest of the women, let's hear it. <laughs> My mom will love this part. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, I think I think Katie did a pretty good job summing it up for all the for all the women. It's such a it's like a fantasy. It's a fantastical release. It is. Well, I think story you're told over and over and over again from the time that you're little is from Disney movies to you know the Hallmark Channel. It's, oh Jesus! Don't even get me started. Uh, well, I was going to say, I, I think you really uh, nailed it there with these these shows and these stories and these movies are at their best when they're uh, juxtaposing the upstairs and the downstairs right? Uh, lifestyles. So um, one that doesn't get a lot of play, but is one of my absolute favorites that, uh, and I have so many friends that make fun of me for this or that fight me on this being this. a good movie. And I think it's absolutely fantastic is Gosford Park. That's one of the few of these I haven't seen. But doesn't that have Ryan Gosling in it? it no, it has Ryan fucking Felipe. <gasps> That's who I was thinking of. Oh, I had such a crush on him when I was in high school. Everyone did, uh, including Reese Witherspoon and her chin. <laughs> But yeah, no, that one is it really, really uh, puts a lot of emphasis on the the downstairs, the downstairs folks, you know, the pores, the servants. There's something like Sense and Sensibility, which is a Jane Austen novel, just as Gosford Park is, and um, uh, Pride and Prejudice is Gosford Park. You're thinking of Man Mansfield Park. Mansfield Park, thank Gosford you. Gosford Park it. is the is the Robert Altman murder mystery. Oh, okay. Yes, and Mansfield Park is really, really close to being that exact thing because um, I have read that book. But like Sense and Sensibility comes from the perspective of these women who are left bereft because their dad and husband dies and they are left with nothing because all of it goes to his son and the son that's like a stepmom and the daughter's situation. So the son's like, get out. And so now they're left to figure things out as they go, and their best hope is to marry rich. Well, and that's so, Pride and Prejudice, is the, the whole idea is that dude with five daughters and no sons is going to be dying soon. So he's got to marry these women off before they lose everything. I wonder what Jane Austen's life was like, <laughs> considering how many times she wrote the same damn story. All great But times, so well. But Yes, exactly. Except Every fuck Emma. Fun. I hate Emma so much. Mm, don't get like, on my Clueless. No, Clueless is great. Emma sucks. Like the character is a She's terrible, horrible Cher. bitch. No, Cher is nice, but Emma is just a rotten, rotten woman. Really, really not kind to people. But uh, we, anyway, but, you know, it's almost like atonement. There was another movie that we were supposed to talk about at some point, but. Um, <laughs> But no, so how often do I pull us back onto track? That's how bad this just got. Um, <laughs> I am a fan of melodrama, obviously, but I think I just fucking hate Joe Wright. Yeah. I and, think and I hate him so much. Oh. Like, 
It might be as a person at this point. Like, I hate his <laughs> movies so much that, like, I think he must be just bad. For you. For the world. <laughs> oh, my God, Liam. Like, so Joe Wright's big claim to fame was his Pride and Prejudice, which I believe stars Keira Knightley as well. And yes. he made that two, two or three years before this one. And so he really – and then he went on to make um, – Darkest Hour. And I refuse to watch movie. that Pride and Prejudice, by the way. Don't. It's not good. But the, like, and don't watch Darkest Hour. Darkest Hour. I've already, too late. I've already seen Darkest Hour, and that oh, movie sorry. sucks. I take full responsibility. Really? Really? Yes, sir. It is the reason I sit in this chair. I'm and I'm not going to watch that Pride and Prejudice because I already have the 1995 BBC A&E joint production with Jennifer Ely and, and Colin Firth. Then you have the best one. Exactly. Like, what do I need another Pride and Prejudice for? Like, <laughs> that miniseries is one of my favorite movies of all time. So, have you guys read the book? I've read, it, what, Pride and Prejudice? No, or, or not the Pride book Prejudice. Atonement. The book for no, Atonement, I haven't read, silly. I have not read. What do you mean, silly? We've talked about like 17 <laughs> books. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to bring us back on track, Liam. Okay, Sorry. no, I haven't read Atonement. Okay. Dan? No, I haven't read any of this stuff. Okay. Okay. I it, it, Now, you guys have not seen this before? Mm -mm, Correct. First time. I saw this uh, back in 2007 because I used to, you know, back in the before times when, you know, people did things, uh, I used to go to AMC theaters, used to have their best picture showcase where they show all the best picture nominees back to back. Um, and this was during the period of time when it was just five. Um, oh, so it was much easier. It was much easier. Like now they usually split it up over two Saturdays or there's some places like in the, you know, places that aren't Pittsburgh, Dan. Oh boy. You you might have the option of doing a twenty four hour marathon in some of the mm -hmm. larger markets, but even that's become more. Even before COVID, that got to be a little bit weird because there are fights between like the movie theaters and Netflix. So when there were Netflix movies starting to get nominated, they weren't showing them as part of the Best Picture Showcase, and it's like, why am I paying you this money to come see like half the Best Picture nominees? You're not wrong. So. Uh, but yeah, so this I saw and I haven't watched it since. And I was interested to go back and watch it uh, because it might have just. I thought you meant that you're doing this show now off your memory from 2007. I was like, God damn it. Yeah, Liam. man, 100%. <laughs> no, I saw this movie like 13 years ago. What is it exactly that you do here? <laughs> what, what would you say you do here? <laughs> No, so I, I first saw this in 2007, and I hadn't watched it since, and I was interested to go back and watch it because have, at risk of going off topic again. That's always a risk with us. Continue. I have, it's what I call uh, my Titanic rule. I, I give it the Titanic test, where there's this weird thing that I have with Titanic uh, where I will, which I hate, by the way, I hate Titanic. 
I think I think we covered this about James Cameron. Yes, uh, yeah, you and Jim Cam are just not yeah not not, not, not compatible. Um, buddies. So, I hate Titanic. I don't think it has any redeeming qualities. <laughs> However, I love movies that are like Titanic. Like I like the epic scope and like the grand melodramatic romance and like the costume drama period piece thing. Mm-hmm. So like every once in a while, I'll catch like a, a clip of it that has no dialogue or I will see a still photograph from it, like a production still. And I'll look at it and I'll be like, and I love movies like that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Titanic's not as bad as I remember. So bad though. And so once every like seven to 10 years, I go back and I try to watch Titanic again. I have the same exact thing with, uh, with crab bisque. Like I love soups that are like <laughs> crab bisque, <laughs> but I don't actually like crab. And so, but I love like clam chowder and like all these like hearty kind of, you know, seafood soups, but uh, crab bisque, I always hate, but then like I go to a restaurant and a waiter's like, well, we have this crab bisque and I'm like, Ooh, that sounds good. And then I like get halfway through the bowl before I remember like, son of a bitch. I hate crab bisque. Will you just taste the soup? All right. I'll taste the soup. I'm going to, I'm going to need a new sound effect for when we derail into subjects that aren't even film, not even like movies, removed. but so that's why Titanic and crab bisque are the same thing in my mind. Uh, oh, there's, sense. there's no difference because like, I'll get like maybe an hour into Titanic and I'll be like, son of a bitch. I hate Titanic. <laughs> um, so I think Titanic's a lot better if you just start an hour and 20 minutes in, but that's besides it, it really isn't. There's nothing good about that movie, but, uh, all that being said, every so often it tricks me into it. Or sometimes I revisit it on purpose. Uh, to, to remind see if, yourself to, to see if it's as bad as I remember. I have the same thing with Godfather Part Three. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Okay, I'm not even going to go into that. And it is as bad as you remember. Spoiler alert: Godfather Three is as yes. bad as you remember. Yes. So I hadn't given the atonement, the Titanic test, and I hadn't seen it since 2007. And I was like, you know what? This was nom- nominated alongside. There will be blood. Ooh. No country oh. for old men. Ooh. It was that year. Michael Clayton. And like, I can't remember what the other one was, but the other one was better than atonement too. Like maybe I had just seen like all these tits out. Awesome movies. Maybe atonement just failed in comparison with those. Like, I really wanted to go into this a little more about the Oscar bait thing, because I think that's what you're talking about, because there is always one. It's always one Oscar best. We call it the nomination. nomination. Yep, that it's that the nomination is... for moms. It's the the Oscar yep. nominated film you can take your mom to, like uh, sometimes Hidden it wins. Figures or Green Book, Lady Bird. I like Lady Bird. Don't judge. That's fine, but it's the nomination. Like it that's is, the movie that you would take your mom to go see of all the movies that were nominated that year. I did recommend it to mine, but I feel like I have noticed that there is always a period piece like. And and it has a great chance at winning. I mean, Shakespeare in Love, The King's Speech. Those are two very unremarkable films that both won Best Picture. I so, love both of those movies. I uh, King's Speech is fine. But 
that's what I always try to determine because I, I hate to think of things as Oscar bait. I think I hate to think that something so huge and big and cinematic was made so cynically. And that's always my wonder when I watch stuff like this is do I detect a like we're milking the audience for these types of ideas. We're just putting in we're, we're going by the numbers with historical drama. And I think this one, unlike Darkest Hour, Joe Wright's most recent Oscar bait film, this one does not necessarily feel that way because mostly because of the acting, I think. I think it's because Joe Wright fucked it up. Maybe, maybe. I think I mean, he's too bad a director to actually deliver actual Oscar bait. <laughs> so before we get into that, because Liam obviously has some opinions, which yes. is unusual. <laughs> what's on the opposite end of the spectrum? I'm not saying name a film. I'm saying as a concept, what's on the opposite end of the spectrum from Oscar bait? And what I mean is what I, what I'm interpreting what you guys are saying as Oscar bait is that something where someone is kind of not really caring about the artistry or the product they're actually making and is literally just trying to produce something that's going to be commercially successful, make money and win some Oscars. Is that, am I interpreting that right? That's generally what Oscar bait means. But my opposite for Oscar bait would be something like more auteurish and independent film, something where someone takes risks and like I could give you a Three examples, which the biggest one being The Lighthouse or Mother or... Or like something Werner Herzog would make where I imagine he doesn't give a crap what the audience thinks he's making his film. Right. Or The Black Swan, I think, because mm. that actually did get nominated for Best Picture um, right around the same time. I don't think it was 2007, though. Um, Black Swan, which is very much an auteur by Darren Aronofsky. And he is making his own film and you can think of it whatever the fuck you want, but... He's doing it, whereas this feels much more focus grouped, almost. Like, what mm. will appeal to the widest range of audience? And how pretty can we make it? See, I don't even necessarily think that it's a question of uh, audience appeal. I think it's a question of, is your audience the Academy? And that it's too. And it's things like, and, and I think that, like, movies movies get accused of being Oscar bait when really it's the studio or like the executive producers that are kind of the guilty parties in this um, because they do the green lighting. First of all, I don't think anybody in, in the room, like the actors, the costume designers, the directors, they all might know that a certain type of movie gets a lot of uh, attention from the Academy but I think that their intention usually is not quite so uh, cynical, jaded, where there it's like that they just think that this is, you know, oh, I'm making this Oscar bait movie. Um, but I, as opposed to like an indie auteur sort of thing, which I think um, not necessarily the ones that you're that you're saying, but the the indie film has become the new Oscar bait. Like this is kind of classic Oscar bait. Whereas, yes. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, things like there will be blood, no country for old men, parasite, um, parasite, the, uh, nomad land most recently. Yeah. Um, 
the the independent films that nobody has seen are the ones that people assume are going to do well at the Oscars. But on the other end of that spectrum, you have uh and I and I think this is kind of the the famous counterpoint to Oscar bait in the instance of like the King's speech is the zeitgeisty film. Yes. Where yep. you have uh two movies, one is the classic Oscar bait movie, one is one that really captured the zeitgeist, and most of the time it goes with the Oscar bait. So yeah, like, like King's speech King's speech uh beat out the social network. Is is the classic example there, um, and and things like that have happened a few uh, a few times with um, like Driving Miss Daisy versus uh, that other fucking movie that I hate, Goodfellas. That's the one. Um, wow. Or uh, La La Land and Moonlight, the biggest one La of the La biggest Land. like ap- absolutely opposite, where La La Land is very much something that appeals directly to Oscar voters. And Moonlight is very much an independent film that focuses on marginalized voices made by a marginalized director, all of that stuff. And Moonlight won Best Picture as opposed to La La Land. I thought Barry Jenkins should have won Best Director, too, I'm just saying. Barry Barry Jenkins is pretty awesome. But this movie, Atonement... Sucks. to, To bring it back, definitely feels like you don't know. You can't tell... But I think the performances are what separate this from other Oscar bait that I've seen, like The Darkest Hour or Shakespeare in Love or something like that. Like, Keira Knightley and James McAvoy in this are just sizzling. Like, oh, my God. I was fanning myself during the sex scene. Like, yes. Yes. So, yeah. Good. Well done for the pretty people pretending to be attracted to one another. Um, but I really didn't like their relationship. Like I didn't buy, I didn't see that. Like it felt unearned. Like I didn't get that level of buy-in to each other to like, I'm going to leave my family and go work as a nurse and renounce them and wait for you. Right. We don't get the time that to set that up to make it feel weighty enough. I think they try because they do make brief mentions of like, oh, you were at Cambridge together for three years yes. and all of this. And they, but then they she's like best. not fucking talking to him. Right. Because she, so, she can't. She can't possibly. She can't. She He's of better. a different, different social class. Yes. She won't let herself. She mustn't. <laughs> I think that his statement when they see each other when she's a nurse where he says – essentially paraphrasing he says something like i don't know how much of this is real and how much of it is just us hanging on to like a memory of a moment that happened in the library three and a half years ago and i'm like yeah that yeah it's that one <laughs> it feels that like second that second one <laughs> yeah and and like i think that scene and the sex must have been awesome it looked good it did it did no there's no nudity folks there's no no breeze. damn no ass, no nothing, and it's well. Still you get you get so half of hot. a uh, CGI Cumberbatch cheek. Oh yes, God! It is we CGI though because he was wearing mm-hmm. shorts, and then they CGI'd an ass onto it. We gotta I, talk about that. I, I guess because the actress under him was underage. I, 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 I read that bit too, but I didn't understand why. I'm I like, believe why that would she be the just case. film a real ass. No, I for. 
protection. Well, I I think that it's interesting because as soon as I hear Liam right at the beginning of something say, I fucking hate this, I start to look at it under a different light. (laughs) You're like, do I like it? I feel like I should like it now. Well, not just that, but like there are there were things about this film that I was on the fence about. And I think Liam will probably push me on one side of that fence and Katie might push me onto the other. But one thing that can make those decisions difficult is okay. So if you hate the director and you hate his work, that's a pretty strong, you know, that's a huge part of the film, but there's a lot of competent people working in this film, not just the actors. Uh, For example, the lighting was absolutely incredible. I thought that now, while you may disagree with the artistic choices they made in some of the shots, I think a combination of the um, director of photography uh, McGarvey, uh, Seamus McGarvey and his lighting team did some really powerful, incredible stuff. For example, when Bryony walks into the library during the sex scene, the way they hid the two characters using lighting and slowly brought them out, which you can tell was not the way they were actually lit um, when you see the scene again, the second time around where they show you the whole scene from their perspective, right? where the lamp is and all of that makes it obvious that they would have been completely visible from the child's perspective when she walked in. But I think probably for the impact of the scene and also possibly to try and visually represent um, Bryony's inexperience with the concept of sex and, you know, not having any, again, she obviously is part of the plot where she has feelings for Robbie and she's 12, 13. So she doesn't understand those feelings. And then being presented with her first sexual encounter between two people, I think the way they brought them out slowly lighting wise out of the background, I thought was ph- phenomenally done. And there were lots of other scenes what where I, I think, was looking at the lighting like, wow, this is gorgeous. I think it is a matter of perspective there because I think from approaching it, the way she approaches it, they would have been that dark by comparison. Because eyes are getting used to the darkness. Well, because not only the eyes are getting used to the darkness, but they're on the other side of the bright light. So the bright light right. is shining in her eyes. So what's on the other side seems dark. Like in a okay. in theater, there's um, you guys are you familiar with a scrim? A scrim is a curtain of sheer fabric that you can paint onto it and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but the the point of a scrim is that when you light it from the front, it looks like a solid curtain. But when you light it from behind, objects become visible, so you mm. can see through it. But it's all dependent on where the light is hitting and what direction it's coming at you from. It had the perspective, that kind of, perhaps. Yeah, the perspective, it, and it had that kind of feel to it. Um, as far as like when she's walking in and like she doesn't see anything, but like as her eyes sort of like get literally over top of the closer she gets, and the more the lamp is not directly in her line of sight, uh, she can see the figures in the darkness. Like I guess that's the that's the logical reasoning behind the way they did right, it. But it was a great reasons why they did it. Mm-hmm. But the way they executed it, I thought was really competently done in a way that I don't know I've seen that particular effect before. I was like, wow, that's really cool. And a lot of the a lot of the outdoor lighting where they were doing really wide shots of like British countryside, but while also lighting the actors' faces in a really natural way. I just yeah, I, I thought the lighting in this film was really gorgeous, and I loved so many of those shots. 
Yeah, and the color, like the color work that they do in this is so such a relief, honestly. And maybe that's my modern eyes from watching every goddamn movie as the same filters for so long. But mm-hmm. like they really embrace the difference and use it to their advantage. There's kind of three different lighting and gradient setups for this, which is, you know, the f- the day they fall in love, which is all very summery and bright and high contrast. And then the section where um, when we see the people in London, which is much more like middle toned and feels the most realistic. And then there's the scenes where Robbie is in France when things are much more gray and dreamlike and almost oppressive and grainy with how it's showing it, especially I would be absolutely remiss if I did not bring up the amazing oneer that's in this, which is a industry term for a, a long one shot. That's literally the only reason this movie was nominated for Best Picture. I know it was. <laughs> it's I know the it was. absolute it's, only reason. It's too obvious in my opinion. Yeah. But when we're talking about the coloring, like I thought that the color gradients are so well done and really match the tone. And yeah, Seamus McGarvey was very good at figuring out the look of this film. Yeah, and and I had to look up the cinematographer during that scene, but in general during the movie, because I thought it was Roger Deakins. I mean, I wasn't, I, I knew it, I knew I was probably wrong because I've kept up with Roger Deakins and I know his, and I, I don't remember this being on the list, yeah. but the style. He was nominated for, for the Oscar for best cinematography, uh, for two other films this year. In 2007, or you mean this? No, in 2007, uh, Roger Deakins was. Oh, right. And that's probably, first of all, like why Roger Deakins didn't win because they canceled each other out. I think it was the Jesse James movie and No Country for Old Men. He was nominated Mm. twice in this category. Um, And so probably split the vote, which is why he didn't win for either of them. I think that guy's been nominated like 30 times. I know that two years ago, he was also up for two different movies. And I saw but, both of them, and he but was. But now the best he's won thing. twice, so good for Roger Deakins. I love good for that Roger Deakins. He's also yes. just a phenomenal human. If you just ever oh, hear him great. talk, he's like the most modest, most charming, just soft-spoken dude ever. Um, it, well, one more technical thing while we're on it, and then I think we can move on to parts of the plot, etc. I think I know what Liam's going to say to this, but because I'm still a little bit on the fence on this particular technical filmmaking bit, I'll ask Katie first. <laughs> Um, Katie, what did you think of the treatment of time in this, specifically the rewinding and playing things backwards and moving forwards? Um, yeah, I won't say anything else. What did you think of it? So that was for me. And again, I am on the record as being someone who really enjoys it when a movie plays with time. That was for me one of the things that felt the most useful in some ways to kind of illustrate exactly how we should be perceiving this as the audience and so that we know that because i think it's done in order to illustrate that you know now we're seeing it from Bryony's perspective now we're seeing it from cecilia's perspective it's also the thing that makes it feel a little like fake like cynical to me because there's these weird points within the movie and this is totally one of them that it it feels like it's artsy for artsy's sake and 
So I felt kind of mixed about it. I was like, okay, I can kind of see why you're doing this. And it works. But also, and maybe this is, you know, 2021 Katie talking. and Maybe 2007 Katie would have had a different opinion. It it feels um, kind of trite. So, hmm. but I still, I was still on board with it. I understood what they were doing. But it was also like, meh. It's that's the running theme with the entire goddamn movie though, because like the it's, it's so many good ideas that it just absolutely drives into the dirt. So there are times that the time shift makes sense, specifically the one where you see Briny seeing what she sees out the window, which looks like a weird confrontation uh, where he makes her get undressed in front of him and then have like the 1930s equivalent of the wet t-shirt competition. (laughs) But like, she's the only participant and he's the only judge and she's obviously pissed. And like, it looks bad from that perspective, but then you realize what it really was fairly immediately after. And you, you get kind of clued into the fact that you're rewatching that not right away, but with relative ease, I think, I think that one was well done. Um, but yeah, every time after that, every time like, after that, that isn't specifically a flashback of Briny realizing something decreasing returns, diminishing returns. Mm. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. Like when she, the other time that I thought it worked was when she was, uh, when she goes to their wedding. Yes. And she remembers the thing, the way it really happened. I thought that worked pretty much every other time that seemed like it was meant to like, just intentionally discombobulate the audience with the time. Right, The arrest scene was one of those where I was like, I don't understand why they're applying that here. I think it's used well when they do it, the second time where we hear what she whispers to McAvoy or to Robbie uh, way late, like right before he dies. Like, I think that time it's used well, but when it, when it happens from Cecilia's perspective and it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and like when I don't see the point in, uh, jumping back three weeks or three months or whatever it was or or six months i don't even remember what like so it jumps ahead four years then for no real reason it jumps back six months Mm -hmm. to them having tea and cake and the thing with the stuff like and she's a nurse and he's a soldier (laughs) now and that was one of the that was one of the points where when we get to the, well, we'll talk about the twist at the end. That was one of the points that I was like, your twist falls apart with this scene. Totally falls apart. And I'll go into more detail then. But I, I wanted to make sure I brought it up. That- but yeah, like, so that one didn't really work. Like, did they, I mean, maybe they met up. Did they? Right. I don't know. Is that, why are you putting that here instead of chronologically? Right. And all of the scenes with Bryony as a nurse. Why? How'd you guys... How'd you guys feel about that? Like, because there's three actress changes for the Bryony role. But Vanessa Redgrave. Saoirse Ronan and Romulus Ramirez. I don't know. 
Romulus Ramirez. What are we on Star Trek? Nice try, Liam. It's like Romly, Romulans and Rom 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 Ding Dong. Almost like this person hasn't been in more things. Ramola Garai. I was right there. I yeah, was right dude. there. You were kind of so close. close. Actually, so. Samsonite. I was like, way off. So the, you know, between Sarah Sharon and Ramola Garai and Vanessa Redgrave, who portray the same character over the course of her life, like Vanessa Redgrave, of course, fucking rocks it out of the park because she's Vanessa Redgrave. But I, I hate to say it, I felt like Ramola Garai was really this kind of weak link between the two because Sarah Ronan is such an intense and dedicated actress and I feel like they were asking Ramola Garai to do something almost impossible and maybe that's because I've watched a lot of Sarah Ronan's movies now when she is the age she's supposed to be in this movie and I was like you look nothing like Sarah Ronan. This was this was my first Sarah Ronan uh at the at the time uh it was many people's first Sarah Ronan um, I thought they did a decent job in getting people who looked like each other at different stages. Yeah, I thought the physical casting was good. Uh, for a second, I thought it was, uh, for, for a fleeting second, I thought it was, uh, uh, what's her name? Elizabeth Moss from The Handmaid's I Tale. I also thought I that. I did too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, this was Cher Sharonin's <clears throat> breakout role, but It way. was. It was. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress at 13. Which is a super rare. The and next time she, wouldn't happen until True Grit with Haley Stanfield. Right. But I would argue that, like, you know, people that this happened to normally don't go on to huge things. Like, Haley Stanfield is is starting to get, like, more things. But, like, it was True Grit and then, like, Pitch Perfect. Like, there was a fairly, like, Pitch Perfect 2, I think. Uh, there was like a pretty wide gap there before she did things that like a lot of people saw. You have Haley Joel Osment, who was in the Sixth Sense and then disappeared, like popped up and did Secondhand Lions, and then like disappeared until he was like in his thirties, and he did the uh, Ted Bundy miniseries thing. Oh my god, he wasn't Ted was Bundy. It was the one with uh, with what's oh, his- you're you're talking about a- yeah yeah with the one with Zach Efron. He's in that. And I was like, who the fuck is that guy? I know him. And so I Googled it and I was like, holy shit. He sees dead people. He has a very specific look. He does. Yeah. Now he's like very potato shaped. And I mean that in the best way. But, (gasps) and then you have uh, like Quavanzane Wallace um, and uh, uh, what's her name from Whale Rider. And like most of them haven't gone on to like huge things. Uh, mm-hmm. But Saoirse Ronan has her star just keeps rising. Like she's been nominated like four Multiple times, times now for Best Actress. Yep, yep. And she'll she's gonna win one someday. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if we see her in the French win something for the French Dispatch, which is she's in Wes Anderson's new movie. She's one of his stable now. She she's part of his his company. The surprising one for me because I know Saoirse Ronan. She's great. I know James McAvoy. He's one of my absolute favorite actors, right up there with Tom Hardy. But Kira Knightley. She brings her A game. She was my surprise in this because, like, I don't generally think of Kira Knightley as like this amazing actress, but in this, she is so good and so uh, intense about her emotions. And like I said, that sex scene is just so well done, and you really feel all of the in all of the in difficult things she's going through. 
in this. So I was surprised because I figured she was going to be the one where I was like, you're probably not going to do too good. But I was just as enthralled with her. I uh, I was reading that, um, and I have to see if I can find it again, because I don't remember the magazine publication. I don't know if it was like, it, it wasn't Esquire or, or Vogue, but it was, it was one of those. Um, uh, a fashion magazine said that her green dress was the most iconic movie dress of all time, beating out yeah. Audrey Hepburn's little black dress from Breakfast at Tiffany's. The green dress, which Keira Knightley wore in this movie, has been named the best of all time by InStyle magazine, exceeding some classics as Audrey Hepburn's little black dress in Breakfast at Tiffany's, Marilyn Monroe's white dress in The Seven-Year Itch, or Vivian Lee's red dress from Gone with the Wind. I was going to ask you guys about that. Audrey Hepburn's iconic dress is from My Fair Lady, but that's just... No, the little black dress is from... I know what it's from. Is from Breakfast at Tiffany's, but there's nothing in My Fair Lady that's like that white and black dress she wears at the end. Oh, don't even try. No, but it's not like that didn't create a fashion craze. That wasn't zeitgeisty. It was beautiful and she wore it well. Truly decorative. She's more like charade probably has more iconic dresses in it as far as something that like captures what the trend is or sets the trend. Or I would say, I would say Diane Keaton is in, um, any hall. hall like it is so iconic and it's so beautiful but i'll tell you this much there's probably six people outside of kira knightley who could wear that dress because <laughs> it only looks good if you are well there were only sticking. like two people who could have worn audrey hepburn's dress from breakfast at tiffany's and one of them is kira knightley that's true <laughs> so. yeah i mean I, I gotta admit i'm not one to point out dresses and costumes but when i was watching this with my girlfriend i literally out loud i said holy crap that dress is incredible yeah and well and also like that that green you're, you're talking about like the colors and the saturation and the light the light plays off of that green dress so well and it pops against everything else so, I mean, that costuming and, and cinematography really worked there. Yeah, mm-hmm. the the it's definitely real silk. Absolutely. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's an antique dress, because that's definitely something they do. If you see if you watch a lot of period pieces, you'll see the same dresses appear because those are actual dresses that they've built to antique standards and they just get recycled <laughs> because right. they're really hard to make and very expensive. And in general, the costuming outfits the the sets everything was very well made and felt authentic to the period like i even reading through the goofs on little anachronisms here and there i was like throwing most of those out i was like that's bullshit you're a nerd that's bullshit like it was like it you know what i mean it was just kind of like it all fit and worked um we were especially taken aback by Bryony's nurse outfit, especially when she flips the cape over and has all that red. I was like, damn, that is quite a statement of a nurse outfit. I will say that since this has been a thing in other films, the use of red in the sixth sense, for example, I feel like it's used more often. And so you notice it in a lot more scenes. Whereas in this, I noticed that the French soldier with the with the traumatic head injury that she stands next to as he dies i mean they put the most crimson of crimson curtains around him and it's the only thing that color in the entire ward and i'm like okay well that's the death curtain obviously (laughs) exactly and then 
And then in the next 20 minutes of the film, she's walking around with that red cape and she's almost, I don't know if she's supposed to be the Grim Reaper or what, but I felt like the connection between the two reds there was like, it's like the mosquito net in empire of the sun. It's like, you just put that around whoever's going to die next. Exactly. Except that we're like, they're putting signs around it going, check it out. This person's going to die. Cause it's literally the most saturated, brightest thing, you know, in the entire movie. Can I, oh my God. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I need to, no, and fine. I'm going to do this a couple of times as we talk about other things, but like fucking Joe, Wright. Liam has to shit on something right now. I can see it in his eyes. Let's hear it. Liam. How do we go from a Spielberg movie to this? Because you've picked both of well, them. What I'm, let me <laughs> he did, out. folks. Liam picked them all. It's, it is my fault. No. Uh, we'll get more into that in a minute. But uh, <laughs> how do you go from Spielberg to this or to any movie and have Spielberg be the one with the lighter touch and the more restraint? Like, that's how fucking bonkers insane this movie is, is that you can watch <laughs> E.T. after this. And this still has more present, like, hand of the director just in there fucking with shit. Like, just messing things up. It's like doing brain surgery with all thumbs. And they, like, go in through the eyeball. Like, it's just, like, everything about this movie. Like, the camera does not have to move that much. It really doesn't. Oh, God. It really doesn't. Like, dude cannot just plant and shoot a shot. You know walking what I mean? towards the camera. There's so many scenes of walking towards the camera. And okay, now I'm going to get into it about sucks. the oneer. The, the oneer, Liam. Uh, uh, no reason for that oneer. None it's so whatsoever. Bad. But why is it bad? I I loved. I I thought that they put so much effort into the Dunkirk set piece that I was like, they did. They put a lot of effort in, and I think part of it was because they didn't have a lot of time to do it, so they could only do it in a oneer. But like, yeah. maybe, but it felt like, that's the thing. It didn't feel like something that was furthering the story or, or giving a perspective. Like it felt unearned is the thing in the context of the rest of the movie. Yeah. It feels tacked on like, and the scenes, the rest of the scenes from Dunkirk are so good. You know, and it's not like the, it's not like the shot in Gone with the Wind where like, you start on Scarlett O'Hara and then it pans back and you see like all of these like Confederate soldiers wounded just like all around her. And then like the flag is billowing as like the camera pans back even further where it's just like starts with her self-centered perspective and then like her world and the, the tragedy of everything that's going on around her is slowly growing. And like that one shot just tells the whole thing. That's a brilliant shot. It's the centerpiece of the movie and there's a reason why we're still talking about it even today. The oneer from uh from atonement doesn't really accomplish anything except being the oneer from atonement. Yes. And getting exactly. it and getting it to be a best picture nominee. And it's so sad because so much of the like I said, so much of the rest of the Dunkirk scenes are so good. Like they're beautiful. Like when they come up, when James McAvoy climbs up over the beach and he looks down and he sees it, like you know it's Dunkirk just from that shot because of how iconic that battle is and or not battle. Remind me later in months or years from now when we finally get around to talking about Dunkirk the movie. Can't wait. 
this Dunkirk and that Dunkirk look nothing like each other. So who's lying to me? Because one is a bunch of fucking drunken assholes riding a merry-go-round, and then one of them is a bunch of guys getting bombs dropped on them just standing in a line. (laughs) Dunkirk was pretty big, right? I know, but like... A, we're talking about three different locations in real life that took place over several days, if not weeks. I'm going to get into the history here in a second, so we'll find out. They stumbled out. into like the good Dunkirk, like the drunk merry-go-round Dunkirk, though. Also, I I don't know. I don't remember what coastline or what spot Nolan's Dunkirk was filmed on, th- like that actual scene. This was filmed in England, not France. Right. So. They they found a coastal town that looked like it, and they just made it up to look even more like it. But stark difference between what I had most recently thought of as Dunkirk versus uh, what this seemed to be while bleak and rather hopeless uh was at least a rollicking good time Uh, for some people for some people yeah i mean they're like singing on a bandstand and like there's a ferris wheel depends on the day you know ships were getting sunk but that's the thing about war okay so there were there was definitely the first hour at least of this film where I had to ask myself the question, I think out loud, I did. I was like, is this a war film? I'm like, did my partners fuck me? Did they pick something that has literally zero war in it? And I didn't bother to check because I didn't have anything to do with picking this film. I was a little concerned about that when I was watching <laughs> it again, because I was like, I remember there being some war in this movie back in 2007. <laughs> but then it totally recovers. I hope end. I was right. Yeah, I... It, yeah, it quali- It definitely qualifies by the end, but I was like, oh, man, we like barely see He fucking shows up in a uniform, by. and I was like, oh, thank God. Oh, I mean, there's this- <laughs> Dan's going to be so mad at me. Well, and also for Dunkirk, so we'll get into the history right now in terms of Dunkirk and what was going on in the in the bigger picture, but this was a strategic retreat that could have turned into the British getting their asses handed to them out of the war and then through some luck and timing didn't happen they got to recover and get back into the war and kick some ass but this got painted by the british in terms of propaganda as like look how great a job we did retreating essentially like look how many troops we saved yeah but if you were there on the wrong day which i think uh christopher nolan's film highlights there was plenty of death and destruction going on. Um, But that's also a microcosm of war in general. I think anyone who's been at war or is telling a tale about war will tell you that it bounces around from just atrocious boredom where usually you don't have access to a bar and a bunch of whiskey, etc. He literally fucking goes to the movies. Right. Like he goes to the movies. In the saddest way possible. Yes. It was a very sad way to go to the movies, but like still... That's not what I thought was going to be there. I also don't think that's unrealistic. As a commander, you got to keep your soldiers from like causing trouble, you know, getting drunk and getting in fights and getting local girls pregnant and all that. You, you got to keep troops entertained and you have to keep them mustered so that when the ships are actually coming in, things are organized and you can do what needs to be this sort of efficient retreat and get them on ships. And I think Nolan's Dunker kind of highlights some of that, but yeah, to give a little background to what was happening here, 
so first of all, thanks to Dennis Myers for being the only person on this episode that came through for the historical research. So thanks a lot, Dennis. It was really well written. Way to shame the other guys. <laughs> hey, you know, maybe maybe, maybe your friend Dave will step up one of these Come on, days. Dave, where you at? <laughs> a phantom, a shadow of a former life. I am Dave! Starts with talking about Robbie. So principal character in Atonement is Robbie Turner, who's released from prison after being convicted of rape to join the British Army and ends up fighting in the Battle of France and dies at Dunkirk. Spoiler alert. Battle of France. The Battle of France began on May 10th, 1940, when Germany invaded France, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. The Allied Defense Plan, Plan D, called for the BEF, the British Expeditionary Forces, and the 1st and 9th French armies to rush into Belgium once it was invaded by Germany. They were to defend the Dial Line, which is D-Y-L-E, which ran from Antwerp in the north down to the northern end and the Maginot Line near Sedan. The rest of the French army was committed to the Maginot Line defenses that was believed to be the most likely invasion route. The Ardennes was considered to be easily defended. It was thought that its dense forests and narrow winding roads made it difficult for a large force, particularly an armored force, to penetrate. The German army did, however, quickly penetrate the Ardennes and crossed the River Meuse and captured Sedan on May 12th. From there, they made a furious armored advance to the English Channel, which they reached on May 20th. This split the Allied forces in two. The German forces in the north that had invaded Belgium and the Netherlands forced the Allies back towards the Channel. After the Netherlands capitulated, French and British forces consolidated along the coast in Dunkirk, Boulogne, and Calais. So those are the three places you could ostensibly film a, a, a story about this retreat. So Dunkirk, the most famous uh, place, the retreat of Allied forces across Belgium caused the UK to initiate Operation Dynamo to withdraw the BEF to retain its strength to defend against the anticipated German invasion of Great Britain. So, to summarize here, uh, they got split by a quickly invading German force, and in order to not lose its ground forces, which Britain did not... Britain was famous for its powerful navy, but both in World War I and World War II, at different scales, they didn't have that many land troops. So... Having all your land troops amassed in one spot, uh, vulnerable to bombing and being able, you know, the Germans being able to bomb those beaches and kill thousands of them at one time, like could have been something that would have lost them the war. And again, they were preparing for the Germans to invade uh, Great Britain, which is something that sounds outlandish to us now because we know how the war went. But, you know, imagine that you're planning for these things that could have happened. The evacuation took place from May 26th to June 4th which allowed the recovery of about 340,000 BEF soldiers. Imagine the logistics that required. Evacuation fleet included 860 vessels from the UK, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France, including a cruiser, destroyers, minesweepers, coastal launches, yachts, fishing boats, barges, ferries, and others. This is where, you know, the boat dad stuff comes in that we see in Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Boat dad. <laughs> I love boat dad. During the operation, six British and three French destroyers were sunk, along with nine other major vessels. Over 200 British and Allied craft were sunk. This doesn't have the numbers of casualties, but I imagine it was quite high. A large part of the success of Operation Dynamo was due to an order from Hitler to halt the advancing German armor, which delayed the breach of the Dunkirk perimeter. It is unclear what the exact reasons for this order were. Syphilis. 
One is that Göring requested that the Luftwaffe be allowed to finish off the Allies from the air so that it could get more credit for the victory. Another reason given is that the army wanted to husband its resources in order to turn south towards Paris and fight a still formidable French army. The least likely explanation often given was that Hitler may have wanted to allow the BEF to escape in hopes of making a peace treaty with Great Britain. I have an alternative theory that I've read. Is it syphilis? No, it's drugs. For whatever reason, the Panzers were halted for three days starting on May 24th. During this respite, the Operation Dynamo fleet was assembled, Allied defenses on the perimeter were strengthened, and a large contingent of troops were evacuated. So there's a really great book called Blitzed by Norman Oler that is, talks about the use of drugs in Nazi Germany. And it has original research done um, by a guy now who looked at Hitler's doctor in all of his notes because he kept copious amounts of notes about the kinds of drugs that he was feeding Hitler. Mm -hmm. And at this time, Hitler was uh, going back and forth between the highs of pure methamphetamines and the lows of pure opium. And it's said that he became incredibly paranoid during this time because, you know, doing those kinds of drugs is definitely going to cause that. <laughs> and when he found out, like, this attack was ordered by his lower men. And when he found out about it, he was like, nope, no more. Stop it. I didn't order this. You don't get to do it. Because he was in like a drug-fueled state. So that is another one of the possibilities of why Hitler just very mysteriously was like, we're just not going to do this anymore. Then like three days later, he's like, I've got an idea. Let's crush them yes. at Dunkirk. Yeah, right. Blitzed is such an interesting perspective on how the Nazis used methamphetamines in particular to perpetrate their war and all the history that comes with learning Hitler's story about that is vital. It gives such a different perspective. Right. Well, and what's interesting is there's a total different and valid reason for blitzkrieging soldiers to be on methamphetamine where you need to be awake for like four days right. straight to push through versus the upper leadership which may have also been using it to stay up and, and do a lot of work in terms of logistics and commanding and stuff. But I think the other thing that brought down the Nazis in terms of their leadership is that famously the leadership structure in Hitler's upper echelons was super confusing. You could look at charts in terms of who reported to whom and who was in charge of what and Goering famously favoring the Luftwaffe. So, you know, the, we talked about the Japanese um, hierarchy in the military and their army and navy also was very combative. And this is pretty common. Uh, we saw this with American armed forces in World War II as well, between the Army Air Corps, the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps. It's like all the generals from their own uh, branch want the credit for being making the decisive moves in this particular invasion and winning that part of the war. You know, they're thinking about what's going to happen after the war, after we win, was I successful? Am I going to get promoted? Those kinds of things. So I think it was common to have um, upper echelon leadership sort of fighting about who was going to do what. And like the whole and this case, and Montgomery sort of dynamic, even between the cooperating, cooperating armies. Or MacArthur right. in in the Philippines. Right. And I mean, you start talking Patton and Montgomery, at least you're talking about different allied countries where mm -hmm. there it's like, oh, okay, one country wants the credit over another. 
But to see generals fighting amongst themselves for the same country, especially when that indecision often could have lost them the war. And, you know, that, that's brought up a lot that Hitler wasn't a military genius. And part of the reason why the world got lucky and the Nazis didn't win World War II is because of the random decisions that Hitler made sometimes going off of, yeah, drug fueled and drug induced, you know, bouts of depression or whatever. Yeah, that's syphilitic rage. Constantly mm-hmm. being injected with either meth, uh, vitamin B shots to help prevent the um, the da- the coming down effects of meth, mm-hmm. and then when he needed to go to sleep, it's like I was just gonna give you a little opium here. Like it was, it was a fascinating perspective that I've I've never found anywhere else. That's really blatantly honest, and he goes into detail about this is where I got all of this information from. So it's it's very interesting book. Here's a little bit of the history on the German side. In the first phase of Germany's offensive, Fall Gelb, which lasted only 26 days, German forces defeated the Netherlands and Belgium, forced the BEF off the continent, and destroyed 30 French divisions. Following the evacuation, the German army took a six-day pause to reorient itself for the invasion of France proper. This phase of the German operation, Fall Rot, began on June 5th. Despite putting up stiff resistance, Paris fell to the Germans on June 14th, Resistance continued until an armistice was signed that took effect on June 25, 1940. During the Battle of France, including Dunkirk, the BEF suffered 66,000 casualties, 25,000 killed or wounded, and 41,000 taking prisoners or missing in action. The RAF, or Royal Air Force, lost over 900 aircraft and suffered 1,500 casualties. Almost all of the 445 British tanks that had been sent to France with the BEF were abandoned. So this is an interesting point in the war where unlike 1943, where the Nazis losing was a foregone conclusion, this was a point in the war where um, the U.S. hadn't joined the war yet. They were helping the U.K. and sending money and equipment over, but they hadn't joined the war effort yet. And so, yeah, Britain had to be very careful with the BEF to make sure it wasn't destroyed or they were going to lose the war quickly. So this is kind of a pivotal point of the war. The Maginot Line, am I remembering my high school history class correctly that that's the thing where they built the big scary wall with all the guns on it and then the Germans just went around the wall? It was a, it was, it wasn't exactly a wall. I believe it was a series of, uh, it was like a line of forts in Belgium. So it was more like dug into the ground mm. and with huge, you know, cement bunker structures and cannons facing one way. That couldn't be turned around. They couldn't point backwards, right. no. And while I haven't looked at a map recently, so someone, I, I don't have to ask, I'm sure if I'm saying this wrong, someone will write in and tell us. But They'll blame um, me, it'll be fine. I believe the Maginot <laughs> line was on one end of the Ardennes. So they sort of were like, okay, tanks can't make it through this forest. So we're only going to fortify this. And this is where the Germans have to go through in Belgium because they're not going to go through the Ardennes. And then, of course, the Germans steamrolled through the Ardennes. And that's when everything went to shit and they cut the Allied army in half, as we as we were saying. So how common was it to to at this point... Like, what kind of straits does anybody know? What kind of straits was Great Britain in that they were like releasing convicted rapists from prison to go fight in the army? Oh, that, that, that was, 
Not unusual. That's standard operating procedure? Well, I'm glad you asked. I mean, they did it. They did it in Vietnam, too. But here. With no downside. So that's actually the other third of this research that discusses <laughs> exactly that. Excellent. Well, hey. Perfect. Great segue, Liam. Clap you're up. welcome. Nice job. Yeah. Sometimes Liam just randomly walks into- My shit always works. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. You're right 50% of the time, Fi- right? No, I know 50% of everything. That's right. Well, certainly after all my painstaking editing, what people end up hearing from you is mostly correct and great and flows perfectly. It's like at least 70-30, right? <laughs> so it's like 70, 70% of everything. So uh, like Katie mentioned, this all depends on what time period and what country you are talking about. Um, but in terms of the British Army during the 30s and 40s, the question is asked, could Robbie Turner have enlisted to get out of prison at this time uh, in the UK? given the seriousness of the crime he was convicted of, which one question I had there is, I mean, I guess whatever, it's a stylistic choice, but I was like, damn, we're not going to see any of the legal process or like a montage of a trial or like a presumption of innocence whatsoever. I mean, this was like a, he said, she said he was with these other two boys and comes back. And next thing you know, bam, he's doing four years in prison. And it's like, damn, I guess just off of all, all off of one, little girl witness who says i saw him and i don't it. know if this is accurate but i feel like at some point i was made to understand that one of the subtleties one of the subtle differences between the american legal system and the great britain legal system is there is no presumption of innocence mm. the burden Correct. of proof is not on the prosecution it's on the defense i have heard that as well okay Mm -hmm. so if you don't have an alibi or proof that you were innocent yeah you have to prove that you're innocent they don't have to prove that you're guilty well that explains a lot so but the question is could he have enlisted in the army to get out of prison for a serious crime like rape um while one could argue that that is somewhat implausible the urgent manpower needed in the run-up to world war ii may have allowed this to happen Uh, The seriousness of this offense has historically been a bar to enlistment in modern professional armies. Paroling convicts to enlist seemed only possible when a service was faced with severe shortage of enlistees. During the pre-war buildup in the late 1930s, the British Army habitually lagged behind in recruitment. In 1937, the regular and territorial armies together were 72,000 soldiers below their authorized levels. In the post-war era until 1996, the British Army banned all convicted criminals from enlisting, after which this ban was relaxed but still explicitly banned those serving sentences for rape, sex, or drug offenses. For comparison, in the U.S. during the draft era, so 1940 to 1973, there were instances and stories of instances where prison sentences were avoided if the accused enlisted. But outside of World War II, this seemed to be an option only in cases of minor offenses and was normally an action taken by the courts before a conviction. From 1877 to 1940, federal statute barred enlistment of persons convicted of felonies. This ban was relaxed in 1940. The pressing manpower needed uh, for World War II led to cases where inmates were paroled from prison contingent upon their service with the U.S. Army. This practice was severely curtailed with the creation of an all-volunteer military in 1973, and the waning need for manpower after the Vietnam War and the end of the Cold War. I think the answer is... Coulda? Could have happened? Probably. Britain was pretty desperate. Yeah, because if, if they were 70,000 below 
the acceptable limit in 1937. The movie opens in 1935, and he is released three and a half years later. So it would have been into 1938, right? Is that when Dunkirk yeah. happened? Uh, 1940 is when 1940? Okay. But, so. but he would have gotten in a little before then. Right. Because he would have been in France and then separated. Or like 38, 39. Right. I think right. around that point. So, Well, um, real quick, I'll make one last point on history because there's a Churchill quote in here and you got to read a Churchill quote of when course. you get a chance. Especially when it shows the sort of um, duplicitous nature of Churchill. Churchill. In talking about the desperation of the British forces and having and and allowing criminals to enlist, another thing that the British High Command might have been might have been forced to do was to allow black and brown troops into the regular BEF as opposed to you know being in India and being overseas uh, because you know we do see a black soldier with the three as they're making their way across the countryside. And my first question was, I wonder if that's realistic. How common was it to see black soldiers in the uk my question was it an was it an american combatant because that at that time black soldiers couldn't list in america but he has a british accent i listened mm-hmm. for like the brief moment he says something i was like oh it's a yeah british he guy. didn't have a lot of lines but um yeah again it made me think how much was this happening and and you know we've talked about that a little bit for world war one and so uh i looked into it a little bit and read a uh university paper that that studied exactly this subject of of indian and african troops um in the british army and essentially this was sort of like what you would expect meaning that the upper echelons of british society didn't really want black and brown people to serve alongside their racially pure troops i'm doing the Finger the quotes. Air, doing the finger quotes. The air quotes. <laughs> someone air quotes someone tell here. them I'm doing the air quotes here. <laughs> so um, many air quotes. So it's like they allowed it because of the need, but it was not out of some kind of sense of equality or anything that we should be patting them on the back for. It was more like, uh, things are getting pretty bad. We might as well take all the bodies that we can. Um, and of course, depending on the service, but especially in the Navy, a lot of discrimination still happened with those troops in terms of what jobs you were assigned and what you were allowed to do. Um, This is a surprisingly, I don't know if woke is the right word for this, but for some of the things that Churchill has got on the record saying and being a pretty outright racist and super, you know, proponent of colonialism. Here's what Winston Churchill had to say on race inclusion in the BEF and conscription in the UK. There must be no discrimination on grounds of race or color. I cannot see any objection to Indians serving on Her Majesty's ships where they are qualified and needed, or if their virtues so deserve, rising to the admirals of the fleet. It's like, that's a great quote, <laughs> if it ended there. But right? the, last, oh, the last sentence but of the quote says, but not too many of them, please. No! <laughs> Winston <laughs> Churchill. Oh, <laughs> and Winston. I was like, oh, Winston Churchill. Fucking Winston. You almost made a non-racist statement. Almost. That's oh, more than he would have said for the Irish. It's definitely, definitely. Oh, tell Evans to send me someone who can get it right the first time. Go on, out. Right. We got to bring up some of the criticism of this movie beyond our own because obviously we all have some criticism and one of those critics was david lean's wife and sandra lean would be her name and 
Joe Wright apparently really loved David Lean's work and watched a lot of his films and tried to kind of ape that style. And so when David Lean's widow watched it, she said, I thought it was terrible and badly directed. Everyone goes on about the long shot of the beach at Dunkirk, but I thought it was boring and laborious. Obviously, they were trying to get the feel of a David Lean epic, but they failed. Without David, it's not so easy. <laughs> oh, man. That's such a that burn. Savage. Savage. Fucking love, love that. It. I just want to like, I, oh, man. I just want to spread that over my toast. Like, <laughs> for days. For days. That's my favorite ice cream topping right there. I mean, who, who else but David Lean's wife to talk shit about this and be like, you're trying to be good, but you Dude, suck. like if this were in an interview, mm. like those digital glasses and like a joint would like just drop out of her mouth, like just like tsh, fucking badass. So uh, to get into, I think the most interesting part of this movie for me is the last like 30 minutes of it where we see Bryony as an adult. She is trying to, as the title of the film tells us, atone for her mistakes. And we get to, s and this is where the twist. So comes bef in before because... we get into the twist, Katie, can we. Okay. Just because this is such a plot heavy movie. It is. Um, can, can we just take a second and do a quick and dirty on what happens. Cause we've alluded to a lot of things where like, uh, Briny has a crush on Robbie, but Robbie has a crush on C Cecilia. I got you on this. I can do a rundown for it. Okay. Us. Sounds good. Essentially what happens? Robbie goes to war in France. Well, and it's because he's accused of raping uh, what? Like a 15 year old. How old is she supposed to be? 15 year old girl who's staying with Cecilia and Briny's family. It's like their cousin. Yes. So Robbie is accused of raping uh, Briny and Cecilia's cousin. But it was really Dr. Strange. Mr. Doctor. Mr. Doctor. Benedict Cumberbatch, who makes a strange random appearance in this. Yeah. Well, it was before he was Benedict Cumberbatch. Like, this is pre Sherlock days. This was oh, also my yes. first Cumberbatch. So, yes. like, I went back and I was like, no, Benedict Cumberbatch is the rapist. He's got such a baby face in this, too. It's so cute. He does. So Robbie goes to jail. Cecilia and Bryony become nurses. Cecilia becomes estranged from her family. Robbie ends up enlisting, going to France. Cecilia becomes, um, what do they, I think they call it, a sister nurse. So I, I assume that's like a head nurse. Mm -hmm. And Bryony is training. And she decides she feels terrible. She just feels so bad. And so she's going to go and apologize to her sister. Forcibly, if that's what it takes. <laughs> and that was the point when I lost respect for that character entirely. I was like, okay, it's fine to send a letter. Not cool. Not cool to come and just show up at her house. With your red cape. <laughs> exactly. But then the very end, the twist of the movie... Is that this is all a novel written by Bryony's character, and it's a true story, except for that one scene. That one scene is all made up because she wanted to do something that's very unclear and poorly. Wanted to out. do something nice. So she wrote the ending 
where they, after all of this, she gets to apologize to them. And they get there happily ever after. They don't accept her apology necessarily, but she does what she can to make things right, and they get to live happily ever after. But, spoiler alert, they're all dead. They're dead. All right, can I go now? Yep, everybody dies except Bryony. Well, and in her words, what she said in the interview as the older uh, version of the character, she said, I gave them their happiness, which right. as soon as she said that, I was like, the hell you did. They were already dead. What do you mean you gave them their happiness? You didn't give them shit. I, I really like did not like that quote or highly disagreed with her perspective. Exactly. So that's the thing. When I watched it and when that happened, I was like, I cannot wait to discuss this moment with you guys because... It's so very like pop culture literature feel good. And I am willing to bet that the book probably pulls it off way better than the movie. Um, because that's often the case. Um, but in the movie, I was like, you're just making yourself feel better about all of mm-hmm. this. You're still bad. You still lied. You, you, you cost this man and your sister her life if we're going to you know, stretch things out that far. No, totally her fault. Like it, it feels very self-serving. And then the kind of a pop psychology answer at the end of like, Oh, but about hope. I was just so unsatisfied with that. And to me, it then feels like a much darker film about self-deception and I don't think that's what it's going for, but that's what it came across as to me. Interesting. I, I agree with you um, because I, f- I feel like you could make an argument that, and maybe this is what they were trying to do. Maybe. You can make the argument that they're trying to square all this away and give give her character closure and stuff. And I didn't see it that way at all, but I didn't necessarily see it as a failure because I wasn't sure what their intent was here. So I actually, as soon as that scene happens, I was like, oh, you're still a shitty person. Like you're just trying to make yourself feel better and sort of kind of rewrite history here. And I couldn't tell if that was lost on the writing and directing team necessarily. So I... I couldn't criticize them for that choice because if they were trying to draw her in the end as sort of a failure at redeeming herself, I thought that was successful in the sense that that's that that dark ending is kind of what I got out of it. But I don't know. What did you guys think? And I I think that is um, very much when I when I talked about the criticism in the mission briefing talking about something was lost in translation I think that's what it's referencing is the depth of what's going on there and now I'm actually interested to read the book because it's like that would be a really interesting twist if this person had actually done the introspective work that it takes because at a certain point you know you have to find a way forward and these people have been dead for at this point when the movie is made 50 years. So, and she has dementia, all of that stuff. So I am probably going to read the book and maybe I'll report back to at least us in the chat. Have a follow. So it's, it's jarring that that sudden transition 
is really jarring for a couple of reasons. One in that it really doesn't, it really doesn't follow anything notable or or noteworthy. So like the scene before it is kind of like, huh, well, she's just going to leave then. And then she's going to stand outside and see them making out in a really creepy way. I'm sorry. Yeah, that felt like, really fake. <laughs> fucking Joe Wright. Jesus Christ. Um, God damn it. Uh, so <laughs> again, Liam, you picked this movie. I just want to, I, I know to I did. And I just want everybody to know that I don't just suggest movies that I like. Sure. <laughs> Sometimes I'm going to shit on something that I put on the, on the list, but M- most times some would argue most times <laughs> who's to say, <laughs> however, but yeah, so like, it's not like there's a culmination. There's not like a climactic scene that then this is undercutting. It's just like shifting from like second gear to second gear. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they just push the clutch in and just yeah, it's just it. I don't know. It's like the the engine did like a funny thing there, and then you just sort of like keep going. Uh, but like so, like it's jarring, and I think they were going for that jarring out of nowhere feel. Mm-hmm. But so like the sixth sense, they're going for like the twisty jarring. Yeah, but the thing sixth sense, there's you know a lot of these it things. The cheap. sixth sense, the the usual suspects. Um, Fight Club, a bunch of other stuff with twist endings that I'm now ruining for people who haven't seen them in the past 20 years. But like, there's, there's usually like a building of tension and a montage sort of thing. And like the music does a thing and the camera might do a thing. A couple of characters might look at each other and like a dawning realization will happen. Fucking none of that. It's just like cold, dead cut, like smash cut to a, a television the interview. To, a, to a to a studio booth really because you get like all those screens up there um and it goes into the interview and so that was like the first unsatisfying part of it to me but if that were the only thing wrong with it i could probably have overlooked that because it was jarring enough to make you sort of like get the bends you know like it was just like completely out of nowhere but to Dan, to go back to what you were saying, if they, they were not commenting on the depths of what a shitty person she is, because yeah, if they were, they wouldn't have followed it up with a scene of James McAvoy and Kieran Knightley playing in the surf and having their actual happy ever after at the the end of that. I hate it. So like, that's something that now, if they had taken that and taken that and then put it after the scene, like when they're all making out in the window and she's standing outside, like having been rejected. If you take that and then put it there and then from them going back into the, like they, they play on the beach, they frolic, they're free, they're happy. And then you go into the scene in the studio booth, the reveal. That was a very valid Liam makes it better. See? It must be nice to always believe you know better. To always think you're the smartest person in the room. But yeah, so that's that's how you do that. And then, like, you just fucking leave them there. Like, uh, but the, that being said, there is something uh, that I find 
haunting about the reveal when you see what actually, like how they actually ended up like her dying in the subway tube. Uh, my, not my grandmother, but like my cousin's other grandmother. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, the, their grandmother who I'm not related to, um, probably my, her name was Jean, probably my favorite British person of all time. Uh, she was a wonderful woman and she actually grew up in, in London during the blitz. Uh, and so she had to like do stuff like hide down in the, in the tubes and, and things like that. So, so I always think of her when I see that and I'm like, Oh, well, I'm glad you didn't, I'm glad you weren't in that tube where the thing flooded because that would have been bad. Like, and that's just a, a, a really haunting way to go. And then like when you cut back and you see him dead it retroactively makes some of the editing and cinematography choices that they made earlier make sense. Sort of like if you bother to remember those in the Mm -hmm. middle of the gut punch of the reveal, but you're not really like, that's maybe something. Sure. Like the scene, the scene where he's looking at his chest and like, I was like, is that a bullet wound? Is that a shrapnel wound? Is it important? And also like when he dies in real life, but in the story where he's not dying and it's like, he's walking off into a sunset in a field through like, through like a, a gossamer lens. It just, you know what I mean? It's, there was like that shot that was like, Oh, that's when he died. Yeah. The tulips. I think it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, so when we talk about a director and the film's intent, it feels like the ending of this film hits in the exact opposite way of what the director wants because it feels like he's talked like obviously the end is talking about hope and like oh well this ending would have been better for these people but we see the very brutal reality of what this couple went through and they hold on that shot of her underwater for an incredibly long period of time which made me question like what are you trying to say with this film right and it works if you think about it as like you cannot erase the past. You cannot hope the past into being better than it was. And whether if it's a commentary on this woman's self-delusion and desire to make things better and how we all make horrific mistakes, hopefully fucking not that bad, but we all make horrific mistakes that were um ashamed of when we're older if it is tapping into that and forcing us to look at the reality versus what we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better then it works but this is far too muddy to say that that's for sure what's happening so here's here's my and maybe this is a hot take i think briny is a i'm trying to think of the best way to say this i think she's a bad atheist She's delusional. She deludes herself in the sake for the sake of art. I think that's a writer thing. Like, I don't think she believes in an afterlife. I don't think she believes in God. Doesn't really matter. But like, I think that, and the reason why I call her a bad atheist is that like, she still thinks it matters somehow how the, the story and the, the characters that she's creating out of these real people how they end up that like, she's putting something out into the ether that like is actually them living on. 
right? Like her intentions are more uh, valid and important than reality. Yeah. And I think like in her mind, even like pre-dementia, I think she thinks that she's creating a reality. And I think this is something that writers get into a lot where it's like they get attached to their characters and they want good things for their characters or they feel one way or another about their characters a lot of times. Um, And I think she took these two actual people that she unintentionally murdered with lies. Right. And is has reclaimed them to be her characters that this time instead of doing them dirty she's going to give them the ending that they could have had and would have had if she hadn't murdered them with lies so like that's what i think like i don't think she's being insincere i think she's just a really bad atheist and that like she forgot for a minute that literally nothing matters yes I totally see what you're saying. Like she wants to convince herself that because she talks about in that interview how she's been this was essentially her first novel because she's been writing it since she was at the hospital and all this. And it's like, so you have been creating these caricature versions of these real people in that you drastically affected in your life as characters in your head. And now 60 years later, you can give them a quote-unquote happy ending and divest them from the actual real people that they were. It would be mean to them to make them die badly twice. This time, on my retelling, they're going to get to live happily ever after. And fuck you, lady. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't care for that. So is there a version of this film where Liam could make it better for Katie? Just through editing? Yeah. Oh. Whoop. Yeah. Yes. Could you could you turn this into a good film, in your opinion, just through editing? Mm, well, I'd have to see what they cut out. And 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 being able to and being able to put your name on it and 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 scratch out Joe Wright and just like put some white. So it, maybe the problem is is you'd have to like fucking nail that camera to the floor first. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. stop moving and none of those moves are earned in any way you know when i decided this movie sucks i gave it a fair chance but it was like as soon as we meet saoirse ronan and she walks down the hallway which might be the third shot of the movie for me it was the nurses scene where we see saoirse ronan's character with the nurses and everybody is marching towards the camera and we've just seen a bunch of scenes of people marching towards the camera. And I was like, because okay. the, the like she walks down the hallway and it's like watching her walk down the hallway. But did anybody notice how she like gets through that door and she like literally turns on a heel like she's like she's guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier <laughs> and like immediately makes a uh, like makes her way down the other hallway. And it's like she doesn't do that any other time. So like it follows her around and she's moving with purpose, but she doesn't make turns like that. And there was no reason for that turn to be made like that. If that was a character choice, then it would have been interesting for her to like march almost like a mechanical thing, like her typewriter. I mean, like you fucking wove the typewriter motif all the way through the score, like Jesus Christ, like, and you're making her march like a, like a, a, toy soldier like down the hallway and then turn like at literally 90 degrees 
for her introduction and then never have her do it again. And I was just like, why did like, you just wanted that shot. You just wanted it to look that crisp that one time for the visual, but it's not driven by anything else. It's not earned and it doesn't have any implications for further in the movie. You know what I mean? Like it's weird little shit like that gets to me, but that's like the first example of a tiny, like the first tiny example of bigger problems that I have. Right. Where it snags your brain and you're like, eh, I don't like it. I get, I'm, I'm off to lean with the Academy though on the music part. And not, oh. not just because the guy's name is Dario Marianelli. Ah, fragile. It must be Italian. Oh, yes, you did it. I was going to ask you to if you didn't, if you didn't say it on your But I will say that because it starts that way and before we've woven all of the novelist, you know, typewriter things into the plot, just the fact that it's such a recognizable sound, I loved that typewriter beat. And I don't know. I mean, is it copying anything? Has that ever been done before? I thought it sounded original. It sounded really cool. I got to give him credit for that. That was one of the best parts of the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, I think the score was the thing that deserved the win, honestly. If anything did. I thought the costumes could have deserved the win pretty easily, but they costumes didn't get it. So but I fucking hated the score. I hated the score the first time I watched it. I hated the score this time that I watched time. it. I fucking hated it. Like it uh, like it nobody else has to do anything because the score is telling you like literally everything else that you need to know. And it gets it is re- obvious. It's it's as heavy handed as the rest of the goddamn filmmaking, and it sucks. So fair. So so Dan, what and is- there were subtle there were subtle things hang on, in this. Hang on, movie. Liam's Liam's still talking. <laughs> there were subtle things in this movie. Uh, like Dan, did you see in the uh, in the trivia uh, about Matilda Saint Matilda, the mm-hmm. window she's standing in front mm-hmm. of? Mm-hmm. Marvelously subtle. Like it's right. not. The the patron saint of wrongly of the wrongly accused. The patron saint of the wrongly accused. There's a, a poem about a girl named Matilda who mm-hmm. who dies because she lies too much, and the woman's yelling lie. Brenda Blethyn is yelling liar in the background. That was one of the best scenes. I gotta say that lady was just committed. Yeah. Oh, well, it's Brenda Blethyn. She's great. But like, what the fuck was the camera doing <laughs> that whole time? It's just. Uh. Not good things. No, bad things. <laughs> so, Dan, you I'll, obviously. I'll, I'll stop. Yes. You, you are obviously. I don't obviously, think we need to ask Liam whether he liked this film or not. <laughs> exactly. Fuck this movie. So, okay. Four times is the record so far. Maybe, for this one. maybe Liam's rating system needs to be like, how many five gallon buckets of shit would you dump on this director's head? <laughs> maybe that's what we need to turn to. <laughs> that's five, folks. So, Dan, what did you think of this movie? What were your impressions? Let me hear. So, man, this has been an enlightening conversation because uh, while I don't have the vitriol in my still beating and not cold dead heart that uh, Liam has, <laughs> you've definitely made me look at it in a different light. Um, I one thing I was going to say earlier when we were talking about the technique and the rewinding and the time shifting, while it worked in terms of, while some scenes worked better than others, but while it was giving you that sort of different perspective and memory um, look to it, I will say that it dates the film a little bit um, because it feels like the product of the aughts, but 
usually I've seen that style more in action films or like Tarantino-esque films. And I don't know what you call this. We talked about the sort of a quick editing cut sequence when someone's doing a montage of like getting ready, for example, and it's just Mm -hmm. like wham, bam. And there's like some loud sounds usually associated with it. And I think that's done a lot in this era. But yeah, in terms of this rewinding slow motion type of thing, I feel like that's done a lot more and probably to greater effect in action films. So what I thought was interesting and maybe a bit jarring was that it was, yeah, it's like what this is like sense and sensibility. I think I've never watched that shit, but it's uh, angly. It sucks. Don't bother. I'm going to message <laughs> Jackie and tell her to make you watch. One it. of these things yeah. is already on Jackie's like, we're going to break up if you don't sit down and watch this entire series with me. So I'm already screwed. It, it like, better be the, the 1995 BBC pride and prejudice. I think that it is. is- pride and prejudice but i I, she's gonna kill me for misspeaking she should leave you if you so here's here's my statement if you you gotta watch the sense and sensibility with emma thompson because there is a moment Uh, where emma thompson literally just goes from like sitting and looking at hugh grant to sobbing on the table and you buy it 100 percent, and it's really fun and entertaining why do i need to watch it you just told me all about it. so let me let me say no emma thompson is great great. she wrote a great screenplay for it ang lee oh i forgot he literally made the incredible hulk (laughs) boring i hate that movie he made flying ninjas boring he takes like he's got the Midas touch, but everything turns boring. Brokeback Mountain was boring. It was the boring. Exception. It was there were some great performances in it. That shit's boring as hell. The representation, Liam. The representation. I, I love the representation. Well, it doesn't make it not boring, but I haven't seen it, so I can't comment. It was boring as shit. I was like half asleep when I directed that movie. It's, it's pretty. He made good. a he made a movie called Lust Caution. That was had sex scenes so intimate. It not only got a NC seventeen, NC seventeen rating, but one review I read of it said, "Unless Ang Lee has devised a new use for CGI, there was some real sex happening." Ugh. <laughs> and I tried watching it, and it was so goddamn boring. I couldn't even watch it. <laughs> The man could make pornography boring. Like, what is his superpower? It's to turn anything boring. But anyway, again, I digress. Right. Um, So. Yes. So, and then one more thing is that, and this might be me not paying enough attention or just not being smart enough, but (laughs) there's the scene where they're in Dunkirk walking through the rubble of of a street and um, Robbie's sick. We don't know he's dying yet, but he's definitely not doing well. He's, he's taking his boots off. I think it's after the scene where he daydreams that his mom's in the room and he's talking he to her. He sees his mother. And his his buddy is walking down the street. And I totally thought, I was so proud of myself because I was like, oh, I see where this is going and I know what they're doing. And then I was totally fucking wrong. But <laughs> he's talking about going to the house from the picture. And I kind of forgot that the setting was like, right on the beach i just thought oh yeah this is kind of the right general setting and when they were in the rubble and his partner says yeah we're here we're right here where i think he was just trying to get him to calm down and sort of whatever i actually thought that that was foreshadowing that 
it was a house that she was she had been in and that was bombed and she died in that house and i totally mm. thought i had it nailed and once again i have no idea what the fuck is going on and i had to wait until the end of the movie to have it revealed but nonetheless now i digress so i liked the film walking away from it my first time um i did get suckered in by some of this stuff that you guys are talking about uh the one the one shot what, what do you call it? a onesie a oneer a one the oneer we can call me. it a onesie <laughs> the onesie definitely got me. Um, the romper, the romper shot, the footy pajamas. <laughs> I'm just trying to see how hard I my, can kill Katie right now. Yeah, my Oscar uh, reviewing friends are just screaming right now. That's all good. I can think is my old editor Matt, just like it's a wonder. Oh my god! Hey so, Matt, how's your romper? <laughs> So I can now see what you're saying and how it's out of place or maybe a little forced, but I'm still a sucker for things like that. And I really enjoyed that shot. Again, it's when I, it's when I thought that the movie may have been uh, shot by Roger Deakins, which is certainly a compliment. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I would like to watch the Liam director's cut of this with the re-edit where you rearrange some of the timeline and maybe give the ending where we find out that the writer has been a shitty person kind of this whole time and her attempts at making amends. Like instead of them showing us how she's become a better person or has become a great partner. And while there's nothing she can do to erase the mistake that she made in the past that caused these two people to die, she has, I don't know, start a charity or something. <laughs> She's triumphed outside of that. Yeah, that's the thing that's missing is we yeah. don't get to see any of the good things that Bryony has done. But she was a nurse and she scrubbed she scrubbed bedpans. Right. Instead, she just lied to herself and to her audience to a certain extent and kind of just wipes her hands and is like, I, I made it better. They they right? had they had their but happiness. Isn't it- isn't it too sad the other way? It's but just too sad. But it would sad. have been, I don't know, it would have been more satisfying and more genuine the other way. So I think the, yeah, what they- would have been attem- more real. Yeah, what they attempted to do with the ending doesn't work because I feel like the other way of doing it would have been much more powerful. So yeah, I got mixed feelings. There's, there are, and I, you're not going to pull me away from- the lighting and some of the shots. Some of that stuff really blew me away. It was gorgeous. I loved while <laughs> while one of the goofs, which is funny, it's so there's a scene where they're walking, the three soldiers are walking through the countryside in northern France, and there's a creek, and you see an obviously not obviously because it's bad, but because it's a reflection, so they did it with CGI, but you see the reflection of the three bombers flying. I yes. thought that shot was great. I was like, that's a really cool way to show some planes. Of course, some nerd on the internet in the goof section is like, from that angle, if you could see the planes in the reflection, you would have also seen them in the sky. And I was like, well, fucking Debbie Downer, thanks for ruining like one of my favorite shots in the movie. But uh, I think it was also commented that like those planes didn't fly until one and a half. Yeah, well, that's years the. Later I'm not even gonna bother with that kind of pedantry <laughs> because was, that shit's like, annoying. Yeah, it, it it's the reflection matter. pedantry that you're gonna get in on. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, yes. the angle of reflection pedantry was like, come on, guy. Like, it's a freaking movie, you know? So, yeah, I, I, I got mixed. I got mixed feelings. And uh, Liam's trying to make me hate this movie. I'm and... not trying to make you hate this movie. I'm just expressing my hatred for the movie. 
Oh, okay. I'm I'm expressing my incredible. Um, it's a, it's fine. Yeah, like my, I, at this point, I'm sort of I, been, I've been not brought fine, Katie. <laughs> I was I was watching this. Like I I ended up getting off work early today, and so I'm watching this in my bedroom. And my husband comes up about ten minutes after it's over, and he's like, "So, what'd you think?" I was like, "It's fine." Thanks. I hate it. It's fine. Okay. I mean, it, it has a lot of problems, but it fulfilled that melodrama fun time for me that for those of you who remember 90s uh tv miniseries north and south absolutely feels the same thing where it's just this candy nonsense of of people having this deep love and people feeling horribly guilty and all of this so like it's satisfying and fun to watch in one way but in the film critic way for me it was just like mm you failed so badly at putting this together. Like I can overlook the failings of it because I like that kind of movie. But if I didn't like that kind of movie, oh my, I would hate this. And there's also something extra dissatisfying when talented people fail. Like people that have Wright's not talented. Okay, okay, McAvoy, fine. McAvoy didn't fail. Kira Knightley didn't fail. Like the actors didn't fail. They showed up to work. Where was Joe? When you have talented people in a work that overall fails, it's more of a shame than when you watch something that's just a complete shit show, because a complete shit show can be even more enjoyable, as we're going to find out, because we are, at at great request, going to review shitty and stupid films here as well. That's why we did this one. (laughs) This is the- I was fulfilling the request. (laughs) don't lie. No, I knew I was probably going to show on this movie. Okay, so it's my turn, right? Is it my turn? Yeah, did you like it? I thought you already went, but okay, fine. No, 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 no. I've, oh wait, there's more. There's much, much more. I want you to know I didn't come into this episode uh, hating Joe Wright. I knew I hated this movie (laughs) and I knew that I hated some other movies that Upon a quick IMD being after watching this movie uh, again for the first time since 2007, I discovered there was a common denominator, and that is Joe Wright, who I'm now convinced just sucks. <laughs> uh, I am, to, to borrow a phrase, I hate this movie with the clarity of passion. Oh, that was perfect. <laughs> And here's here's what's kind of troubling to me because uh, I was not to go on another tangent, but it is relevant. I was uh, in a stage production of a play called The Farnsworth Invention. It was written by Aaron Sorkin. It's about uh, the race to to uh, invent television, and. While Aaron Sorkin and I have parted ways in a lot of respects, as far as like his quality and you know, you guys just, just don't, things. you guys aren't on. We don't the, hang anymore yeah, as much. Anymore. You know, we used to hang out all the time, and now it's like Sorkin not as and much. I were never friends. But there is a similar sort of spoiler alert for theater. There's a similar sort of twist uh, at the end of the Farnsworth invention, where my character David Sarnoff is speaking to to Philo Farnsworth and having stolen television from him. Uh, I like offer him a job. He's like ruined and everything. And like, I won. Yay. And I'm like, Hey man, come work for me. 
Uh, and he's like, oh, what would I do? He's like, yeah, let me think about it. And then like he walks off stage and I turn to the audience and I say, I never met Philo Farnsworth. I just made that last scene up. And then like it goes into this, uh, this monologue about, you know, I, I wish I had, but you know, there was press around and I, it would have looked bad if I had offered him a job and this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, uh, it, this was basically the last anybody ever heard of him. He died years later, drunk, broken in obscurity. But that like the ending in that was done so nicely. It was better written. It was more concise and it had an earned ending. You know what I mean? Like you appreciate conciseness. There was a, yeah, I do. Uh, couldn't tell. in other people, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not for me. It's no. not my, that's not my thing, but I appreciate it when I see other people do it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really nicely done. I thought, uh, also by me, but I mean, by the play, uh, <laughs> but this just didn't do it. Like it's possible to do this kind of thing. Right. And I've seen it done right up close. And this one just failed at that. Um, so yeah, that's my, that's my parting thought. Very well. Are we ever going to escape the unending whirlpool of World War II? Yes, we are. So this was <laughs> yes. This was our last. Uh, this was our last entry into our first foray into the the Danger Close miniseries uh, World War II through a child's eyes, and now we are going to uh, go on to other things. And now for something completely different. Now for something completely different, as a, a great person once said. Monty Python. That's not a person. It's several people. It's many people. It's many things. But yeah, so now onto something completely different. We are going to shift gears and go into the world of slapstick comedy with 1991's uh, Hot Shots. I've never seen it, folks. Me. I can't wait. Neither. Actually, to the rousing surprise of absolutely nobody, I have. <laughs> but I do love this director. I've seen a ton of his other stuff, and I love this kind of comedy. I cannot wait to see what this one is about. Uh, if you well, at this point, our poll will have closed. But uh, after the after Hot Shots, our tenth uh, episode, which will be our second uh, audience poll selected film, will be happening. So. We'll let you know what that is, but I think the results are pretty obvious uh, already. Join us on all our social media if you're not already there. We have a fun Facebook group that you can look up under Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group where um, Jeff and Peter will bring up Danger Close Armory and Danger Close Flightline where they talk. There's some great pieces done on Empire of the Sun where they talk about that... Um, what was it? Splash bombing, bounce bombing. No, I can't. Yeah. Yep. Oh, they skip, did some great work. Skip on, bombing. On, yeah, skip that, was, bombing. that was really, really cool. Answered some of our questions. So yeah, join the groups. And if you are enjoying the show, please go on Apple podcast, leave us a rating and even a review. If you feel like it, it really helps get the word out. It'll help our uh, Google searches so that uh, under war film podcast, we show up and more people start listening. We'll be able to go on and do bigger and greater things. So thanks everyone for listening and we will see you soon. Thank you. Goodbye.
I don't know what's wrong with me. I really do like a lot of things, but I'm I can be really critical and I don't I don't dislike shitting on things, but man, I'm always I the person do, who likes I, everything I, on here. You know, I do like things. Just not this. <laughs> right. <laughs> I swear to God. Join our Patreon. You will see me like a thing. Yeah, and we'll start off with two things that Liam hates. two things hates. that I fucking hated. <laughs> <laughs> we need to throw Titanic in there, and I'm going to add Titanic as the third episode, just so you could shit on James Cameron with like three or four in a row. If you make me watch Titanic, I am getting naked in front of all of you. It's part like, of the war on Liam. I mean, It is part of the war on it's Liam. It's going to work its way in. <laughs> <laughs> like, we will play, we will play strip podcast and i will take an article of clothing off every time so while we've been recording jackie after listening to our empire of the sun episode sat down and watched empire of the sun for her first time and these were some of her live messages coming through to me while we were doing this show live tweeting it oh my god young christian bale is a monster (laughs) if we have a child like that we might have to abandon him How come John Malkovich has always looked like a middle-aged man? (laughs) Oh, man. Basie is stone cold. (laughs) LOL, the fucking rainfall of sparks coming off that plane. (laughs) Dude. Yo, Christian, don't salute the kamikazes. Bad Christian. (laughs) And then in all caps, what the fuck, Ben Stiller? <laughs> so I don't think she's gotten to the end of the film, but I just figured I would toss those. Is she sending those they, to you now? Uh, they she sent them to me like ten minutes ago. Yeah, so that's hilarious. Those are pretty good. 